Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. I'm Anthony Dworkin. I'm a senior policy fellow here at ECFR. And for the next four weeks, I'll be standing in for this podcast's regular host, our director, Mark Leonard. Today, we're returning to the vexed question of the conflict in Syria. And I suppose a good starting point could be the recent statement by the American Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, that, quote, there is no contradiction in U.S. policy on Syria. Not a surprising statement in itself, perhaps, but this follows President Trump's dramatic announcement in December that the U.S. was planning to pull its troops out of Syria, a complete change from the administration's earlier position and followed by subsequent attempts by American officials to put conditions on the president's seemingly unequivocal statement. So what is U.S. policy on Syria now? And what does it mean for this long-running humanitarian catastrophe that the Syrian conflict represents? With me to discuss this are Julian Barnes-Dacey, head of ECFR's Middle East program, Asli Aydin-Tashbash, our senior policy fellow working on Turkey, who joins us from Istanbul, and Jasmine El-Galal, a visiting fellow in ECFR's MENA program who's researching refugees in Syria and who's had extensive experience as a policy advisor at the Pentagon. She joins us from Oman. So, Julian, to, to start with you, do you or does anyone in the region really know what U.S. policy is at this point? I think everyone is completely lost, to be frank. I think you're seeing a, um intra-administration uh, squabble unfold publicly as President Trump tries to assert his desire to get the Americans out of Syria, um, while the national security establishment try in different ways uh, to maintain that presence in the country. So we saw Trump announcing on Twitter following a, a conversation with President Erdogan of Turkey that American troops would be withdrawing very quickly. Um, but that's been followed by a series of comments by different officials, notably uh, National Security Advisor John Bolton in, in uh, Israel in, in recent days, setting out, laying out a series of conditions that would have effectively served to delay um, that withdrawal and which were based on, 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 the, uh, on, a, on an agreement on the ground between Turkey and, and the Kurds, which many see as unrealistic. Um, and hence could act as a, as a more permanent blocker uh, to that U.S. withdrawal. President, uh, Secretary of State Pompeo, meanwhile, has come out saying, no, actually, we are pulling out, and we're pulling out now. Uh, so everyone is fairly lost, um, and I think that tells you a lot about where the Americans are in Syria today. And Jasmine, how do you think that um, American, the American defense establishment, the American military, is going to be looking at this at this point? I mean, even the statement from the president that the U.S. is pulling out, you know, even before that happens, that's a pretty clear sign that he's, you know, his heart isn't in this and that the U.S. is not going to be, you know, pulling its weight in Syria now. Right. Well, to add to the confusion, Secretary of State Pompeo just said in Egypt that the U.S. would continue to work with its allies until every last Iranian boot is outside of Syria. Um, so just add that to the mix and you get a sense of the confusion that's going on, both inside the administration and obviously in signals to our allies. Um, in terms of the military establishment, I think that's a really good question. I mean, you saw it in the departure of General of, of Secretary of Defense, former General 
or retired General Mattis, um, when he left after the announcement, because he just saw that there was simply no way to do this in an orderly fashion without consulting with our allies and without doing it in, in a very coordinated way, which just didn't seem to be the case. Um, having worked at the Pentagon, and I know this um, from experience, that um, the Pentagon planners are, are very, um, you know, they're always very concerned about about timelines and procedures and, and, and troop withdrawals to ensure that um, you don't leave when the job is not done and you don't leave um, in, you know, leaving sort of a mess behind, of course, knowing that they will be the ones that have to come in and clean up the mess later. Um, so it is a very, there's a lot of tension, I think, within the administration um, that is a result of the president's desire to get out of Syria um, and and the the, uh, the the Pentagon's desire to to not lay the groundwork for an even more chaotic situation in the months ahead. So American policy is a mess, and it seems most actors in the region would have no confidence in any kind of prediction about where the U.S. is going. But on the other hand, we're only talking about you know, not that many troops, 2,000 troops, I believe. So could it be said that this doesn't make that much of a difference? Or, you know, does the mere troop numbers understate the, the importance of the role the U.S. has been playing? Look, I think that the American presence is limited in Syria. And to a large extent, everyone has already been counting on a, on a U.S. withdrawal eventually. I don't think many people have had confidence that the Americans were really there to stay. Um, we've seen it in a number of ways over recent months. I mean, the fact that a number of Gulf Arab states are now effectively re-engaging Assad. The Emiratis just announced that they were re-establishing their embassy in Damascus. There's talk of the Arab League readmitting Syria. I mean, all of these are indictments in a sense of the fact uh, that nobody trusts in the American ability uh, to strategically shape the, the, the conflict. And I'm of, of one of those who believe that the American position in Syria was effectively pointless and that it couldn't achieve its stated aims. Um, I think there is a question mark about uh, how this withdrawal is happening and the abruptness about of, of how um, Trump is, is, is orchestrating it. But I think the, the bigger issue here is that um, most actors on the ground are now working around the Americans uh, rather than through the Americans, so to speak. You know, strategic calculations are not being based on the Americans are going to do X or the Americans are going to do Y. Um, the, the, the bottom line seems to be, well, we don't know what the Americans are doing. They're disorganized. Trump wants out. Uh, we have to forge our own ways forward. Um, and I think ultimately that leaves the likes of, of Assad, the Turks, um, other regional players trying to, trying to forge their own uh, solutions in which 2,000 U.S. troops don't really make that much of a difference, whether they stay or not now. I think even if they stay, in effect, Trump has signaled uh, that they're not going to be strategically relevant in the medium to long term, and that almost pushes them out of the game, I think. Great. Yeah, exactly. And I, that's what I'd like to, to focus on, I think, in the rest of this discussion, is exactly this question. If, if the, the U.S. is one way or another you know, disengaging, what, does, what kind of picture does that leave? And here, Asli, it seems like, you know, the obvious moment to bring you in because one of the biggest beneficiaries of this does look like Turkey. Um, as has been said, you know, this decision of President Trump's apparently came in response to a suggestion of President Erdogan. And 
it seems certainly to leave Turkey a, a freer hand in possibly moving against the, the Syrian Kurds. So how, how is this playing out in Turkey? And uh, does President Erdogan feel empowered? Very much so. Uh, I think they, uh, this came up, the idea of a withdrawal was around, as Julian said, but the decision from Trump came up in a telephone conversation with Erdogan at Erdogan's suggestion. And it did, it did come as a shock to many, also within the system here in Turkey. And to be very honest with you, while there was sort of jubilation on, on the government side, uh, the day after was a bit more sobering. What does it mean? It does mean that Turkey has to own now the fight against ISIS, and I don't think they were prepared for that. Now, there's something uh, about the Syria, northern Syria space, which is that everyone wants to be present there in order, not because they want to run that region forever, but, in, but that's seen as a way to have a seat at the big table, the final negotiating table. But Turks, of course, have another reason to want to be in northern Syria, and that has to do with the Kurds, Syrian Kurds. Uh, since 2015, uh, they have been identifying uh, YPG, the, which is the backbone of SDF, the major U.S. ally in the region, as an offshoot of the PKK. I am underlining 2015 because before 2015, YPG was not considered a terrorist organization. Syrian Kurds came through Ankara, attended, you know, uh, uh, there, we had full-page interviews with them or television interviews, and they did have talks with Turkish officials. But things have changed dramatically with the collapse of the peace process with Turks. And now it's a situation in which Turkey's Kurdish issue is intertwined with the political reality of northern Syria. Turks can very much see the confusion on uh, on the American side that there is a discord between CENTCOM, though you know some of the between some of Trump's advisors between the White House and uh, and Pentagon at times, and in fact uh, Bolton's trip here on Tuesday was a near fiasco in my view because while he was very clear about what he came uh, and and communicated that to Ibrahim Kalin, Erdogan refused to see him. Not only that, but what was uh, he's come out with a rather harsh statement while Bolton was still in Ankara. Right, this this was um, John Bolton, the the U.S. national security advisor, and he effectively was making a seemingly rather strange request, effectively asking um, Turkey to protect um, the Kurds after the U.S. pulled out. Um, and I guess, unsurprisingly, um, it seems that President Erdogan was not so uh, receptive to this request. I think it's the condition, conditionality that they're, that they have, that has gotten Erdogan, uh, extremely angry. We will essentially Bolton, uh, introduce a caveat into Trump's withdrawal idea. We will withdraw provided that you promise us not to go after the Kurds. Well, in fact, going after the Kurds is precisely what Turks have been planning. Uh, until this whole withdrawal uh, business came around, what you had in Turkish media and from officials is we're ready to go in, ready to go into Manbij. What they seemed to want to do, Turkish government seemed to want to do, and in fact was lining up forces on the border, is to sort of go into the town of Manbij, uh, which has become an obsession for the uh, for 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 in the Turkish Turkish public uh, for the Turkish public. It's 
happens to be west of Euphrates. It's a Sunni Arab town currently controlled by Kurdish majority SDF. It also is a very important location for the American special forces. And they also simultaneously wanted to push in a little bit into the border, creating a 10 to 15 mile um, sort of uh, buffer zone in some parts. This is a huge undertaking, but they did not, but Turkey did not have ambitions beyond that in the sense that they wanted to push YPG back, but the whole thing about ISIS is new. I, the, the, a few hours after Bolton's plane left Ankara, there was an editorial in, in English language, uh, Sabah, uh, which is very, which has very close links to Erdogan family. The editorial said, was a warning to Donald Trump saying, look, your men are essentially trying to do a coup, trying to pull a coup on you. And, and it was sort of, uh, it's, it's indicative of the way Erdogan and Ankara reads what's going on. And uh, there's this sort of Donald Trump, which they want to do business with and they think they can communicate with. And then there's the big, bad, deep state, including CENTCOM, which is preventing things. And I think they will just sort of have to bide their time and and um, work it out. I mean, the Turkish-American relationship has been a has been on the rocks for quite some time. And every other month, there's an occasion which makes people on both sides of the Atlantic say, okay, finally, we have a reboot. It's back to the strategic relationship, but it almost immediately turns sour. And I think this is going to be a very thorny issue to negotiate. Do you think that this, the, you know, the, the US disengagement makes it in a way more likely that there will be a you know, a real kind of a real battle, a real fight in Syria between Turkey and the Kurds, or will they look for some other settlement? It depends on how U.S. leaves. If 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 Bolton and Pompeo's comment, if we are to, uh, you know, if if American uh, position is indicative of Bolton and Pompeo's comments, then they're not going to leave immediately, leaving behind uh, uh, some sort of a situation in which. Uh, Turkey would uh, attack SDF forces. Uh, I mean, Pompeo used the word slaughter, which uh, Turkey did not like. It, it, it happened around the time of, right after, I think, New Year, and we're not going to allow the Turks to slaughter Kurds. I mean, Turkish foreign ministry and officials reacted, but it, 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 I think it was right around the holiday, so it didn't really make it to the news. But if that's the U.S. position, this will be very. This won't be easy to negotiate between the two countries, and I think there will be a quid pro, maybe to allow it, letting Turkey into Sunni Arab towns in return for not going after YPG-dominated Kurdish-dominated towns. But I think the Turkish intentions are to answer your question. If Turkey has its way, they do want to push YPG back. We don't know what the Kurds will do. I think they're hedging their bets, too. They've started a parallel track of negotiations with the Syrian regime. It's not going that well. But they're also, I think, trying to understand what America will do. Is it is it here? Is it sort of is it going to is it an ally you can count on or are they on their way out? And basically, uh, they need to, uh, a, a new strategy. There is, of course, you know, Russia and uh, the Syrian regime as part of this, uh, this whole triangulation. Right. And in fact, I was just going to come on to those two, maybe starting with the regime, with President Assad. Jasmine, do you see this as, uh, 
you know, as helping the, the regime, as putting it in a more powerful position to assert the final settlement of the conflict now? I do. I do. Absolutely. I mean, you had mentioned earlier that one of the winners of this whole debacle has been the Turks, but I think Assad is also emerging as a bit of a winner as well, because as Asli just mentioned, as the, as the, as the Americans start to talk about withdrawing and the, and the Kurds try to look around them for protection to see what they can do to hedge their bets, as she said, they are reaching out to the Assad regime, um, to try to work out some sort of a deal. And Assad can only gain from that. Um, we know, of course, that Assad's intentions are to take back as much territory as he can from from uh, inside of Syria. And something like this only strengthens his hand. If you take that against the backdrop of, um, you know, this slow but sure normalization of relations with the Arab countries and the region. Um, Assad is on the verge of rejoining the Arab or being invited to rejoin the Arab League, although that hasn't quite happened yet. As was mentioned earlier in the podcast, the UAE has opened up an embassy. The Jordanians have opened up a border crossing, although they haven't reinstated full diplomatic relations yet. So all of this is happening. All of this kind of slow reintegration of the Syrian regime into the region is happening in parallel to this sort of schizophrenic U.S. policy um, with regards to Syria. Now, one thing I wanted to just quickly uh, mention is that this, this isn't just about the Kurdish issue, right? I mean, we have to keep in mind that this administration, the U.S. administration, came into office with two main uh, um, priorities when it comes to the Middle East. One of them was to counter ISIS, and the other was to counter Iran. Now, the Trump administration, well, especially President Trump, believes that the counter-ISIS mission is, if not completed, then on the verge of completion. For months, he had been told by his advisors, his top advisors, that ISIS was 99% defeated, which led to his uh, withdrawal announcement. He just got tired of hearing 1%, 1%, 1% left. Fine. He was like, okay, we're done. We're done, you know? So now the full weight of the, of the administration's Middle East policy is centered on countering Iran. And I think that that's going to factor heavily into any decision, whether it's political or military, that is made vis-a-vis Syria, vis-a-vis the Turks and the Kurds and every other actor in the region. I would caution against taking any sort of statement right now in these days and weeks at face value I think a lot of people in the U.S. administration are going to be coming out and throwing out statements out there. A lot of them could be feelers. A lot of them could be test bubbles just to sort of test the waters. I think that the real strategy is yet to be revealed. Right. But presumably the more uncertainty surrounds American aims and objectives, the more, as you said, the parties to the conflict are going to be hedging. Uh, They're going to be looking for other support. And that could be the Syrian regime. What about Russia? Does this strengthen, strengthen Russia's hand? Julian, do you see, uh, you know, Russia gaining more of a role as a, a potential peacemaker and arbiter now? I think Russia's long been the central actor here. I mean, the, 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 let, let's not overstate the U.S. role. They've been secondary to developments in Syria for a long time. Uh, the Russians have been the key military and political actors. They've been the one forging uh, any agreements that have come to light, they've been one driving the situation on the ground and diplomatically. Uh, 
If the Americans withdraw completely, of course, that will allow the Russians to do even more. But I don't think um, an ongoing U.S. presence uh, fundamentally challenges Russian ascendancy um, in Syria, and, and nor do I think that that's something that, that, that Trump was was eager to, to try and push forward. I do agree with with Jasmine that the, the principal issue here is, is has and is more about Iran. I think that's what uh, Trump and his advisors are, are focused on. But I think one of the interesting things here is that it's become quite clear over recent months uh, that the U.S. presence in Syria uh, was going to be wholly ineffective in really pushing back the Iranians in Syria or across the region. Um, and one of the interesting tensions that does seem to have kind of emerged as, as Trump has played out his decision making is this um, is, is the, the, the conflict between Trump's desire uh, to pull Americans out of wars in the Middle East full stop um, and the fact that uh, any confrontation or meaningful confrontation and pushback against Iran is actually going to suck the Americans into something much deeper. And I am slightly sympathetic to, to the line that, that some people are saying that, that a number of Trump's advisors overplayed their hand here. Um, you had this notion of, 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 of we are going to defeat the Iranians completely in, in Syria. They're going to withdraw completely. Um, and it slowly dawned on, on Trump that actually, if that was going to be the case, that would require an all-in uh, step that he wasn't prepared to make. Um, and therefore, that almost pushed him away from from, from that, that willingness to confront Iran. And so I'm very interested to see, I mean, Jasmine thinks it still will be a central dimension of, of, of Trump's thinking. I'm interested to see how much of that will play out on the ground still. I think a lot of this has been about Trump wanting to differentiate himself and push back against Obama. That's, in a sense, what seems to have motivated the killing of, of the nuclear deal. Um, I'm very interested to see now what happens on the ground regionally. Is this something that, that Trump really believes in and is prepared to invest in? Or, or as, has he actually realized that the cost is too high um, and this withdrawal needs to be seen partly in that context as well? I don't know what the answer is. And could we be seeing then the shift towards a, a different kind of anti-Iran strategy that's more diplomatic, more based on sanctions and support for other actors and less based on direct U.S. involvement? My view is that there's very little prospect of direct U.S. Inter intervention against the Iranians in any meaningful sense in the region. Um, and I think it's interesting that, the, you know, the, the, the premise behind uh, Gulf, Arab Gulf reengagement with Assad um, is this idea that we've lost the war. We have to accept that Assad has won, won militarily. Uh, now we have to try and reintegrate ourselves politically with Assad to narrow the space that the likes of uh, the Iranians have, but also I should say the Turks. Um, in a different dimension, have um, to make inroads in Syria. So there has been a shift um, towards a more diplomatic focus, which in a sense mirrors the, some of the Saudi political efforts we saw in Iraq to try and create more space for, for in a sense, this Arab dimension of, of the Iraqi state. They want to bring back Syria now into to the Arab fold in a way that, that dilutes Iranian influence. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an attempt that the Israelis are mirroring to a certain extent. Israel has invested increased... Um, Israel basically now sees Assad as a means of trying to dilute Iranian strength as well. You build up Assad, you build up, you allow him to re-cement himself in power. As his institutions uh, uh, come back to the fore, that is necessarily, they believe, going to close down the space for, for Iran to, to play its own role, to, to, to run riot with its own non-state actors, etc., etc. So I think there is a shift underway. I personally don't see the Americans willing to confront Iran militarily, but I'd be interested to hear what, what Jasmine thinks on this. 
No, I agree. I agree with you, Julian. I don't see them confronting the. I, I don't see them confronting the Iranians militarily at all. I think that a lot of the, the, the you know, the steps that we've seen the administration take in recent months, like getting a lot closer to the Saudis, um, sort of not trying not to get in the way of the Saudis and the Emiratis and Yemen too much. Um, obviously, uh, uh, fixing, you know, quote unquote, fixing the relationship with the Israelis as they saw it having been damaged by, uh, under the Obama administration. I mean, all of those steps, I think, have been part, um, at least partly part of a broader um, move to strengthen the alliance against Iran. Um, not necessarily in, in, to prepare for military action, but just to prepare for some kind of confrontation and to try to build up this anti-Iranian coalition. So what that means in practice, I agree with Julian, like, you know, it remains to be seen, um, but but it is going to remain a priority. Now, you know, I will say one thing, though, about, um, Julian, what you said about, um, you know, Israeli intentions vis-a-vis Iran and, and Syria and and uh, statements that have come out of the, of previous U.S. administrations, not just this one, which is this constant sort of very misguided and, and quite naive um, belief that that any Western country can push Iran out of Syria or reduce Iranian influence in Syria. You know, oftentimes you see countries in the West have a very Western-centric view or perspective of the region. And this is one of those cases where, like, you, they, they simply don't appear to grasp or to appreciate the extent to which Iran has invested in this relationship with Iran in, uh, sorry, in Syria, in its relationships with other actors in the region. Assad himself very recently stated in an interview that, um, that a Syrian is not necessarily one who lives in Syria or has Syrian citizenship. A Syrian is he who has helped Syria and who has stayed in Syria to help. And so, you know, I just don't know the extent to which Western policymakers grasp, you know, the strength of that bond. Right, and I'm right. not saying it's an impossible bond to break, but I'm saying that it is not a bond that we in the West are willing to expend the energy and the and the troops potentially to break. So just, just to, to, to pick up on that, and I guess to, to try and draw this to a little bit together... Um, it seems to me that what we're, you know, what's coming out of what you're saying is essentially a picture of a, you know, a rather realist, hard-headed attitude to, to Syria now. You know, the, the dominant players are the ones with the kind of the power on the ground, um, and we're moving towards a kind of acceptance of realities, um, of power realities. Where does that leave Europe, briefly, for all of you? You know, if Europe has always pushed for some sort of sustainable, you know, relatively responsible settlement to the Syrian conflict, are we getting further away from that? And what influence does Europe have at this point to, to push back? Um, why don't we start with, uh, with you, Julian? Well, I think, I mean, I think there's still a lot to be decided in Syria. Um, we're in the end game in, a, in, in one sense, but, but, but there's still a lot that has to be played out in the northeast, in Idlib, and in terms of how Assad reasserts himself. Um, but I think there are a couple of things that, that are clear. I mean, one is that, that Assad has won the civil war. Um, the other thing, and I think this is, um, is, is in a sense more disputed, um, to my mind, and, and this is picking up on what, what Jasmine was alluding to earlier, Assad has won the, the, the war and is actually, um, uh, 
emerging with a new degree of strength. I mean, he has options. I think there is a perception in Europe that he's a weak leader. This was a hollow victory um, and he's going to struggle to win the peace. But I think actually, if you look at some of the regional re-engagement politically, politically and economically, if you look at the fact that people actually see him as a potential partner to work against the Iranians, uh, the fact that the Kurds may look now to Assad to protect them from, from, from Turkey and in so doing allow him to regain control over the northeastern uh, resources in terms of energy and some agricultural land. I mean, I think he, he has more options than many Europeans um, are prepared to accept. Uh, many Europeans continue to hold to this idea that if we just squeeze him a bit more, if we sanction him, if we keep him isolated, eventually him, he will implode. I think that's entirely misguided. Um, I think this is going to make Europeans completely irrelevant to, to, to what unfolds in Syria and the region going forward. And I think therefore Europe has some very hard questions to ask of itself um, if it wants to play a role in Syria and, and, and to what degree in terms of possibly helping uh, encourage some of the more positive forces that you do want to see emerging in such a broken society, whether you want to help a degree of stabilization and resilience, whether you do want to help refugees, you know, what will this look like? Um, I think hard dilemmas are coming. I th also think there will be a number of European states who take a much more cynical view and say, hang on, Assad has won it. He's actually doing better than most people expect. Um, it's time to, to re-engage fully, no conditions asked. We have to think about the security perspective more than anything else. Again, I think that would be a, 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 a mistaken perspective. But there are a lot of issues and dilemmas that I think lie ahead for Europeans now. Right. Asli, how does it look from your perspective on what role Europe could play? Well, I think, speaking of hard questions, I mean, there is no doubt that Europeans have been largely irrelevant in the debate up until this point, uh, with the exceptions of a couple of French troops and participation in the uh, anti-ISIS fight. It's, uh, they have not been at the sort of grand bargaining table. Uh, from this point on... Um, at least let me speak for northern Syrian space uh, and Turkey, part of the whole equation. They want two things, it seems to me. One is, to the extent that they can politically, they'll want the Kurds somehow protected as a secular force on the periphery of Europe that has generally pro-Western sentiments. And also they will want to preserve the migration deal with Turkey. There will be times in which these two goals will actually clash with one another. And at that point, possibly the realpolitik will win. Who, and that might be, uh, that might be, uh, that might be uh, dealing with Turkey more often than they would like. Another important thing, I think, I, I just, you know, yes, there's a UN-led process, there's an Astana process, there's Geneva and all, but... I can't for the life of me sort of imagine Syrian regime coming back to control Turkey's borders with Syria anytime soon. So for there is, yes, there is the big equation and the negotiating table, but there is also something called the foreseeable future. And the foreseeable future is going to be Turkey controlling large part of northern Syria and Kurds controlling the rest of it, I think. And you talked about uh, the European uh, tendency to drift towards realpolitik. Of course, the migration question has a remarkable talent for bringing out that uh, 
that realpolitik element. Um, Jasmine, Jasmine, just just coming to you finally. Um, how do you see this? I know you're looking at the question of refugees um, in your work for ECFR. What do you think this means for you know for conditions on the ground? Are we likely to you know how likely is it that we'll see the emergence of local settlements in you know much of Syria that will be sufficient to to attract people back? Well, uh, so. Uh, in terms of the ref, I mean, if you're asking about refugees and the and the possibility of returns, I think that that is still a question that's very much in play. Um, we've seen a trickle of returns back from Jordan and from Lebanon. Um, it's mostly done on an individual basis. Um, families are making the decisions that are best for them. And um, the official stance of UNHCR and other NGOs and INGOs and certainly the EU is that um, conditions are not yet safe enough for a mass return um, of refugees back to Syria or for that matter for UNHCR to facilitate any kind of mass return to Syria. So that's that I think we, we put that, you know, to the side for now in terms of what the European role looks like in Syria, I, I have to say that I think that's up to the Europeans. I find that the Europeans have unfortunately boxed themselves in, you know, boxed themselves in um, and uh, in, in a way that makes it very difficult for them to maneuver right now. I mean, they have kind of dug their heels into the ground and have said for years now and continue to say that they won't um, that they will not uh, negotiate with the Assad regime on, on refugee returns or any other issue. They won't talk to the Assad regime about re- reconstruction. They continue to cite uh, U- UN Security Council 2254, uh, Resolution 2254, and other documents that, quite frankly, and I'm not saying this is a good thing at all, but just realistically speaking, um, is quite out of step with the current realities on the ground that we've been talking about for the last half an hour. So, Either the Europeans continue to refuse to see the reality on the ground, which is that for better or for worse, Assad is a stakeholder, and if not one of the most important stakeholders in the future of Syria. Um, And if you want to get anything done, he's going to have to be part of the conversation. Or you continue to take your principled stand, and you say that we won't talk to you unless, you know, there's a political transition and all of those other terms that are in those existing documents. I don't envy the Europeans for the position that they're in, but I do think that they control where they go from here, and they have a very tough decision to make. Thanks very much. So this could perhaps be the year that Europe finally faces up to these difficult decisions on Syria. We'll wait and see. But in the meantime, thank you all very much for guiding us through the the complex uh, kaleidoscope that the Syrian conflict represents now. So if you've enjoyed this podcast, please go to your social media page or to iTunes and give us a review, hopefully positive, to help other people find us. And of course, we'd love to hear any comments you have on this broadcast or on any other subjects that you think we should be tackling. And you can write to me at anthony.dworkin at ecfr.eu. So we'll be back next week. In the meantime, from Julian Barnes-Dacey, Asli Adintashbash, and Jasmine El-Galal, it's goodbye for now. The researcher for these podcasts is Jonathan Hackenbroich, And our editor is Katerina Botel-Etzinaro.